but we're now realizing that the pipeline itself is an attack vector. It's part of your attack surface, and it can have a devastating consequence, as we saw, you know, with SolarWinds, for example, where if some poison or malicious code is coming off of that pipeline, it can have a cascading impact across an entire industry and maybe thousands of organizations or millions of consumers, that kind of scenario. So securing the pipeline itself is really critical. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Chris Hughes, CISO and co-founder at Acquia, adjunct professor at UMGC, who's also held a variety of other roles in cyber and who has also been on my LinkedIn radar for a couple of years now. Chris always has smart things to say, and I've been wanting to get him on the show for a while now. We're here today talking about DevSecOps. Chris, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here, and the feeling is mutual. I've been following your content for quite a while, so I'm really excited to chat with you. Flattery will get you everywhere on this show, but seriously, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Paul. Tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job. Yeah, definitely. I've been in cyber a little bit over 15 years. I started out in active duty in the Air Force and then spent some time as a federal civilian with a couple of different agencies. One was the Navy doing cloud and cloud security on their behalf, and then uh, also moved over to GSA that runs the FedRAMP program, who many may be familiar with when it comes to cloud security. So I was part of the FedRAMP team for a bit of time there too. And then, you know, moved to different various industry roles in the commercial and public sector side and ultimately ended up co-founding a company where I'm at now called Acquia. So tell me a little bit about Acquia. I understand you guys are owned by veterans, employ veterans. Like, what's the whole story there? Yeah, definitely. So it's me and two co-founders. All three of us are veterans. Those two folks have an Army background and mine's on the Air Force side, as I mentioned. And we're definitely not veteran only, but we definitely have several veterans at the company, you know, uh, different military backgrounds and such. But a lot of folks coming from the commercial space as well. You know, they don't have a DOD background or a federal government background, but also are interested to work in the domain we are in, which is, you know, in the federal domain. We have a good mix of, you know, commercial and public sector work, but I'd say about 75%, you know, public sector, federal government oriented type stuff, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, 25% commercial sector. So I think that's been an appeal for trying to pull folks over and, you know, give them a sense of mission and work on some pretty exciting stuff. Leveraging the talent and the expertise the military gave you guys, and at the same time, giving back. So that's a nice combo. Let's dive into our topic here. We were talking a little bit about DevSecOps, and when you and I had batted some questions back and forth we were going to discuss for the show, I had told you about, I've got a pet peeve with DevSecOps, the phrase itself. And the reason is I feel like the sec should be so integral to the DevOps that it doesn't need to be pointed out as a separate thing. And it's almost like, to me, like saying DevSecOps means sec is something separate as opposed to real DevOps should be secure inherently. So I guess my first question for you is kind of what's your take on that one and how integral should the sec part be in the DevSecOps? There's a lot of DevOps purists who will definitely agree with you. I know I know a few of them from places like MITRE and other places who they agree with you that DevOps shouldn't have to have security specifically called out. But the unfortunate reality is like DevOps has been around quite a while now. We continue to see, you know, insecure applications and secure code making it to production environments and, you know, causing havoc across the industry. So I think that, you know, people tried to emphasize the DevSecOps to emphasize that security should be part of that process. You know, I don't know if it wasn't innately part of the process. I'm sure in some organizations that might be the case. 
But I think it's, you know, kind of emphasizing that security needs to be in the room, needs to be in the mix, you know, as you say, a seat at the table per se, or you talk about that term with executives quite a bit. But in this case, it's, you know, bringing the security team to work with developers and operations folks and, you know, mitigating vulnerabilities, as they say, shifting left per se, but also in the runtime production environment. But that said, you know, names aside, I think that can go too far too. You've likely heard, you know, sec DevOps now, right? Like security is in front of everything. And it's like, you know, the reality is like security isn't the business. It's there to facilitate the business, do business securely within their risk tolerance. But unless you're a security vendor, you know, or something of that nature, security isn't the business, it's part of the business. And I don't like that term for similar reasons to, you know, DevSecOps. Some people may not like that. I like it. Okay. So we're going to we're gonna go ahead and call it DevSecOps then for the duration of our uh, conversation there. You've convinced me it's a worthy term, but I'm going to propose we have Sec DevSecOps Sec and that we really emphasize the security. I, I want to I wanna pitch that to the industry and see if we can't get that one to stick. Yeah, I think if we throw it in there enough times, then maybe we'll get it right, right? There you go. There you go. All right. So how about the roles that help us achieve good security in DevSecOps? To me, the backgrounds I've seen, it's been very interesting. I've seen this evolution of developer and security practitioners sort of merging. And I know developers who have become security practitioners. I know security practitioners who have become coders. What's your take on the roles? How do you see the best successful programs run? What are the roles that help make that program successful? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting thing you're bringing up because I've kind of seen the same, you know, depending on their organization. And I think it's partly due to the the knowledge and skills and the technologies involved in there. You know, as we see like uh, cloud native infrastructure, infrastructure as code, Kubernetes containers, you know, a lot of YAML, a lot of coding. In many cases, you know, we're seeing like uh, not only infrastructure as code, but now we're seeing like compliance or policy as code. So we are seeing a convergence, you know, not just on the roles, but on the skill sets and the technologies involved. And I've seen the same thing. Actually, I've seen some success where people take a developer and they start to teach them security concepts, right? You know, they're used to working with code and, and writing YAML and things of that, writing scripts, things of that nature. And they've had a lot of success with that. And I think uh, to an extent, you know, the developers is, is, is ultimately ended up taking on a lot of responsibility in some organizations because they're responsible for security as you've shifted left and try to empower a developer, catch vulnerabilities earlier in the life cycle, that kind of thing. But they're also writing a lot of the infrastructure, you know, it's making it to operational environments and then ultimately called upon, you know, when something goes sideways. So they, there's a lot of responsibility coming on the developer in this new paradigm. And I also think people that come from a traditional security background who have not done, you know, maybe much scripting or, you know, a lot of hands-on keyboards, coding type stuff, they may be uncomfortable in this new paradigm where everything is kind of as code increasingly, you know, security compliance as code, infrastructure as code, on and on. We're now seeing documentation as code with efforts like OSCAL. If you look at that by NIST and uh-huh. uh, GSA, they're kind of piloting that for FedRAMP, you know, moving documentation and artifacts to code. So it is an uncomfortable reality that, you know, you do have to change with the industry. You do have to learn a lot of new skill sets my experience and what I've seen, you know, to your question of, you know, what will be successful is kind of a mix of all of that, having a fundamental understanding of security, a good understanding of cloud, you know, basics and understanding like cloud native architecture, to be honest. I like that. And I think giving all players in the team, some at least security foundationals, right? In other words, like, like you, you pointed out, you can't, you can't even be in the game anymore without having some sort of coding skills. I think similarly, we should invert that and we should say everybody who's coming on board, you're going to at least get some basic security training and become part of our security team to whatever extent we can rope you in, make you an ambassador, make you self-check, get you policing your own IDE, whatever it might be, trying to get security baked in at, at those moments and those levels. You know, that to me, I think that's a really nice adjunct as well, but I, I love your review of the industry and where it's headed. We were even talking earlier on another episode of the show about S-bombs as code, where even the S-bomb itself is being spit out in a, in a programmatic format, right? So I think, I think you're right. I think it's soon going to be the entire world as code. 
you raised a couple interesting points there in terms of like everyone having some security knowledge. You know, I was just reviewing like the latest 2022 DBI report. And again, you know, 82% of incidents involve some human factor. We keep hearing the catchphrase, security is everyone's job, but are we equipping them appropriately? You know, in many organizations, I don't think, I don't think so. So if it's everyone's job, we should help them be prepared to do their job. And that means, like you said, everyone having some fundamental knowledge of security. I think one trick I've seen is once the CICD pipeline is mature, the security hooks into the pipeline and the security forks of the pipeline, if you will, get coded as part of the pipeline, right? And so anybody that is helping to maintain the code to integrate better security components and more security components, so, you know, hooks out to SAST and DAST and, you know, whatever might be there. Having folks rotate from core production pipeline work to the security functions of the pipeline you know, hey, we're going we're gonna to split off identity and access management into two different realms. We're going to have stage and prod and test and all these be different. You know, somebody's got to code that and build that out. And we're going to start digitally signing things. And somebody's got to code that and build that out. Getting your non-security developers to help rotate shifts into those kinds of security functions for the pipeline, I found to be a great way. And then you send them back where they came from. And now they go back with a lot more security in their brain. I found just those, those shift rotations onto the security projects as they arise, I've always found to be a real good strategy there, too. That's really awesome. Like you said, strategy is kind of like OJT, right? They're, they're getting some uh, hands-on experience because it's one thing to like create the pipeline and make sure all the tools have hooks in there, but it's another to be on the end of end of the tooling and, and kind of fielding the, the telemetry and metrics coming off the security tooling and understand like what this is, why it's significant, yep. you know, how can developers take action on it. So I really like where you're going with that. Yeah, I love it. All right, man. We always talk in the security world about enabling the business, right? We talk about accelerating the business. We talk about not being the obstacle. We talk about not being the office of no. Like there's a million and one phrases I think everybody who's been on my show at some point have said all these things, but in a good CI/CD pipeline, it's sometimes hard to do, right? How do you provide fast security given that not everything can be automated, right? I mean, at some point you've got hooks out to human testing if you're going to be thorough with your security. So what are your tips and tricks for speeding up the pipeline, for getting security as fast and as automated as possible? And then for those moments when you can't automate, dealing with that. You're raising some good points. Anyone that's been like in this field and work with any reputable security framework, whether it's NIST or, you know, anything else, high trust, et cetera, you'll know that some security controls can be automated. They're technical oriented and other are going to be very process or policy oriented. And, you know, you can't automate all those to the full extent always. You know, but there's another thing in the in the mix here, like you talked about the speed and enabling the business, but also trying to do it securely. And it's kind of like that sweet spot where you need to help understand, you know, what's our organizational risk tolerance, what regulatory compliance frameworks are applicable here, and then kind of tailor your pipeline, the, the automated security tooling you do have in the pipeline to align with that risk tolerance and establish gates, you know, to where things can go if, if it's not breaking that risk tolerance. And, and if not, you know, you can slow things down and get some hands on keyboard, get some people in the mix, you know, mainly involved and review some findings and things like that. Another thing I've seen that, you know, is really critical is we're seeing so many tools. You talked about SAS, DAS, SBOM, you know, there's secret scanning, container vulnerability scanning, the list goes on, container hardening tooling, yep. it just keeps going, right? Part of the issue I've seen in a lot of organizations is you have so many tools, you have so much noise coming off those tools, so many false positives, and even even you know valid security concerns in many cases. Uh, just the time of chasing a lot of those vulnerabilities down and findings down can be very cumbersome. So tr- trying to really tune tools appropriately and kind of eliminate a lot of the noise can go a long way to uh, enabling the business and speeding up that developer workflow within the pipeline too. You know, it occurs to me with that point that you could combine these two things we talked about of the role swapping out, like having people work shifts on the security realm, having a security and a non-security practitioner go through that noise together. 
and to learn not just what matters and what doesn't in the sense of, oh, dear, these are things I should be concerned about, but also in the sense of, hey, maybe we can dial these tools back and get them to quit being so spammy and get down to the meat of the matter that, that's actually on the table that we care about, right? Yeah, not only the noise, I mean, that would definitely be valuable to help them see like just how much, you know, because we know we need these findings for this, we need these findings for that, for this functional tool category or whatever, but just letting them see the amount of findings that are coming off those tools and, and trying to, you know, see the developer's daily life and trying to resolve all that while still deliver, you know, under the demands of the business within a time frame that they want to get to market, they want to get something out to production and let them see that stress. I think that would go a long way of kind of breaking down. And you're kind of getting at, you know, the whole DevSecOps overarching goal is breaking down those silos between the teams yeah. Yeah. and getting those teams working cohesively. So I think that job rotation and shared understanding and empathy for each other's roles could be really valuable. I love that. And not to mention, it, combined forces are going to be better at cleaning out the crud from the pipeline. They really will. You know what I mean? It, you can't just have one security guy off to the side barking and you can't have one dev ignoring security. Like, like you, you join forces, you swap roles, you get better all the way around, I think, at keeping the pipeline flowing well. I want to drill in a little bit. You had mentioned this idea of kind of a risk tolerance level and cooking that into the pipeline itself. Do you have any specific examples on that? I'm just real curious. I wanted to drill into that one a little bit more if you've got some. Yeah, we've been, you know, a program I'm supporting right now has a pretty robust pipeline using a lot of the functional categories we talked about, like SAS and DAS and things like that. And we've been trying to align, you know, say severity of findings, for example, based on the environment that you're in. So if we're like dealing with a dev or test environment, you know, we're not going to be as rigorous uh, with security requirements coming off the pipeline and let people kind of develop and, you know, tinker in that environment, drive down, you know, the findings so that when they move to a production environment, maybe where the threshold is, you know, a little bit higher in terms of critical high findings, things like that, you know, they don't have as much lead way to keep pushing, but they've also hopefully addressed some of the things before they kind of moved on to production too. So just having that relationship and working cohesively, like you say, working collaboratively with your development peers is kind of how we've had some success so far. So this is getting into this idea about securing the pipeline itself. In other words, you, you know, what is a pipeline? It's, it's, it's taking discrete bits of source code and it's turning them into a production application. And in between are all kinds of steps with whatever, digitally signing, I think we talked about earlier, stage, prod, you know, test, dev, whatever the various modes are. People have different terms and I've seen, I've seen models of three and four and even five different environments. What else is there to securing the pipeline itself? Like what are the, what are the big picture physics of securing the pipeline itself? You're getting at a point that I think a lot of people are realizing is like, you know, we've, we focus so heavily on securing the code coming out of the pipeline, but we're now realizing that the pipeline itself is an attack vector. It's part of your attack surface and it can have a devastating consequence as we saw, you know, with SolarWinds, for example, where if like some poison or malicious code is coming off of that pipeline, it can have a cascading impact across an entire industry and maybe thousands of organizations or millions of consumers, that kind of scenario. So securing the pipeline itself is really critical. And we're starting to see a lot of best practices and guidance come out around that. If you look at like Google's SOSA framework, as well as like, you know, we obviously had the cybersecurity executive order, NIST published, you know, a new C-Scrim or cybersecurity supply chain risk management. If you look at Appendix F in there, some pretty detailed guidance around, say, open source software and pipelines, things of that nature. And then also really cool, if you go take a look at this, OpenSSF and Linux Foundation just recently published OSS the open source security mobilization plan. And it touches on, you know, same concept that your, your pipeline is essentially uh, part of your attack surface. And the compromise of that can have so many devastating consequences, you know, for downstream uh, consumers. So I think just understanding that that pipeline, how critical it is, not just what's coming out of it, but the pipeline itself and how it can impact everything coming out of it is really key. Those are some great resources. And I honestly was not familiar with either one of them. I'm taking notes over here as we speak. I'm going to go be doing some reading over the evenings this week. 
let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Finally, we are going to be back in person podcasting, meeting and greeting and doing the things that we do best at RSA. Yes, yes. We're going to have so many cool events, interviews, meet and greets and all kinds of stuff to be sure you come check us out at the Exonius booth. But for those of you that are at home and enjoying it remotely, you'll be able to tune in, watch the interviews and hang out with us there as well. Yes, and be sure to check us out at booth number 943 in RSA, and all the content will be available on your favorite streaming platform, along with Exonius Plus. Be sure to check out Exonius Plus, hit the reminder by visiting exonius.com forward slash plus forward slash RSAC 22. I had a friend who suggested too, like some other more just tactical level stuff here, but you know, the idea that you should have a separate identity provider for dev stage and prod that you should have SBOM and Digital Signature coming off of those three as each feeds to the other, that you should have Digital Signing be its own identity provider as well, for example. Like, like you don't want your Digital Signature coming from the same identity provider as any of those three, that that should be yet again a fourth one. You know, little, little tactics and tricks like that. I am definitely going to go look into these two documents you mentioned, though. I wasn't familiar with either one of these from NIST or the Linux Foundation, so I'm going to go check these out. Yeah, yeah, definitely give them a read. I actually just wrote an article for CSO Online. If you go look now, it, uh, I did a summary of the open source security mobilization plan. It's up on their front page, I think, at the moment. But you know, just real quick to touch on what you touched on there, identity and, and using that to sign things throughout the pipeline. And talking about build integrity, you know, there's uh, efforts such as SigStore that are coming out that enable that kind of identity-based uh, signing and attestation. And you know, we're seeing a push for like having a attestation of the build environment itself and not just the, the software, but the build environment and where the builds took place. Uh, right. So yeah, there's a lot going on in that space. And I think we're realizing just how critical and how vulnerable each step in that process can be and how one you know incident along that whole chain can really have a devastating consequence. If you deconstruct SolarWinds, right, you'll see that a lot of these things I pointed out are, are things that could have or would have assisted with that one, right? Bad code got in early and it wasn't signed. It was an identity share in the early stages where environment A and environment B shared identity servants. And that's the reason I came up with these few that I've come up with is very much based on SolarWinds, a very reactionary part of my brain, frankly. But let's shift gears here and let's get into the cultural barriers, right? Truly getting a real DevSecOps pipeline off the ground, getting those dev teams and those security folks working together is one thing. But as you pointed out too, getting folks that have the pipeline built that are responsible for the infrastructure's code, getting them to become security conscious, getting them to buy in and understand it's not just the code that comes out of your pipeline. It is your entire show that we care about. Like, what are the cultural barriers there and how do we overcome those cultural barriers to, to get all of these folks roped in and thinking about these things the right way? You know, it's not a technology problem per se, as you touched on and I touched on. There's so many different technology options and things you can use to facilitate what we're trying to get after, but it's really a cultural and organizational practice and process type thing. And honestly, some of the biggest issues I've seen is like organizations, much like cloud, you've had some great guests talk about cloud and cloud security. You know, everyone rushed to the cloud and didn't really invest in the workforce. I see the same thing with DevSecOps. You know, everyone wants to do DevSecOps and they want to adopt all these tools in the pipeline and just start adding all these tools, but they're not really investing in the workforce and helping them understand like what tools 
tools are doing, why we're using them, you know, how to be proficient with them. They're not really giving folks time and space to work, you know, and become proficient with these things. I made a post the other day, if like you're, if you're adding security tooling faster than your, your team has a you know chance to configure, tune and tailor it, you're actually creating more risk, I'd argue in some cases than, than mitigating it per se. I also think there's other factors at play, like legacy processes and policies that don't really align with where we're going, you know, with our automated processes and our automated technologies that we're talking about in these tool chains. You know, we still have a lot of legacy, like change control boards or technical review boards that you got to escalate to in some cases yeah. that can grind things to a halt. And then one big gap I've actually seen a lot of is organizations, whether you're talking public or private sector, we're all familiar with GRC tooling, you know, whether the big names, obviously, and then there's federal specific ones, but you use them as your source of truth for, you know, system uh, artifacts and, you know, compliance documentation, things like that, and trying to keep that aligned with your compliance uh, requirements. But it just doesn't keep pace with the API-centric nature of cloud and the way we're working with these DevOps and tool chains. So I think, honestly, a lack of investment, you know, in the, in the culture and the workforce, having legacy processes that you, you haven't really updated to align with the technologies and then obviously legacy tooling is another big issue as well. Yep. Well, and, and as you pointed out at the very beginning, this idea that you can buy a bunch of fancy new modern tools, throw them on the pile, not have them configured correctly, and walk away with this illusion of security. I bought the thing, therefore I have the security. Never mind the thing was not configured at all, right? Or, or configured horribly or whatever it might be. So I think, I think that's definitely a factor as well. I like that, that, that point you're making there. The gist of this from a cultural barrier standpoint kind of ties back to the technology piece, I'm thinking, to a certain extent, because the evolution of the SBOM itself, right, getting companies who write software and produce software as their business product for other clients and customers, getting them to spit out an SBOM has proven to be a challenge for a lot of the world, right? A lot of folks don't want to do it. And what we're really talking about is, you know, I'm following the threads of this conversation as we've gone through them. We're talking to a certain extent about the pipeline itself, essentially having the pipeline version of an SBOM. In other words, oh, you who built the infrastructure as a code, you've got to prove to me you've got drift management under control. You've got to prove to me that all your inherited libraries in your pipeline, not in the software product the pipeline produces, but in the pipeline itself, like show me your current, show me you've got drift management under control, show me you've got patch management under control, show me that you've got inherited defects from third parties under control, open source libraries, whatever it might be. Getting developers to be that transparent and be that upfront and candid about where they are and to shift gears and focus on, oh yeah, that we got to pass that one library, stop everything. We thought we were writing code today and instead we're writing infrastructure today. There's a real cultural barrier there in my mind as well, because at that point, security is truly driving the whole pipeline. And I think there's still a lot of cultural resistance. It's not just companies not wanting to do it, but I think individuals in the companies even are struggling with that one sometimes. You're raising so many good points. And, and I've been working on some programs where we're starting to ask, you know, vendors for SBOMs. And it gets even more complicated, not just of software that they're delivering, but say I'm consuming SaaS. You know, how yeah. do you produce an SBOM of, you know, multiple independent service providers kind of built on top of one another, for example. And then another thing we're seeing is like, you know, many times we'll ask a, a vendor for an SBOM and they're like, they don't even know what that is. You're talking for the software, let alone for the whole build environment and have identity sign attestations right. and things like that. They, they aren't even familiar with SBOM for the code that they're delivering to you quite yet. But I will say there's a lot of effort going in that direction. Federal government and public sector obviously gets a lot of slack when it comes to technology and stuff like that and being a laggard. But if you look at efforts like the executive order, you know, the federal government's throwing their weight behind things like SSDF coming out of NIST, the secure software development framework. And that has a lot of requirements around build attestations, you know, SBOMs, things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, using that massive buying power that they have to kind of shift the industry's direction, I think is going to be really powerful. On the note of SBOM real quick, if you haven't, there was a great conversation between Sunil Yu and 
I forget the other, uh, Alan, I forget his name. Andy Ellis. Andy Ellis. Andy Ellis, yes. Andy yeah. Ellis and Sunil Yu had a really great debate with Alan Friedman as the moderator. Uh, nice. And I forget who hosted that, but they argued, you know, in each direction. And it was really interesting in terms of like, should we have S-bombs or not? Or what is the right approach to this? Uh, so definitely go check that out if you haven't heard that conversation. Okay. I've, I've had both Sunil and Andy on the show. <laughs> so that's kind of, yeah. that's kind of wild. I'd love to, I, I'm going to go check that one out. I don't know that I, that I got wind of those two doing that one. That sounds really good. I know Sunil's company has their S-bomb literally published on their website. Like that yeah. open to the world. Like here's yeah, our yeah. click here and download. Yeah, it's right here. Yeah. Jupiter one. I think that was a level of transparency that many vendors weren't willing to take just, you know, publishing yeah. on the website like that. Yeah. But, you know, Andy, Andy raised some really good counterpoints in the sense that if you look at like an ingredient, you know, he, he used like the food analogy and showed like why that wasn't a great analogy in the sense that like, you know, you can put an ingredient, but what does that really mean from a chemical perspective? Like really breaking it down and like, where's the end of the line? Where do we say enough, you know, with this? Cause it can really constantly keep going dependencies of dependencies on and on and on. Right. And it's a, it, you know, it's a big ass. So uh, I think it's a really interesting problem in the industry right now. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. That is cool. That is cool. All right. So, so how about some common mistakes with DevSecOps? Yeah, I think honestly, we touched on a good bit of them already, which is, you know, not investing in the workforce, you know, kind of just pushing things this direction and, 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 you know, not either upskilling your existing workforce or bringing people in who have experience with these, you know, methodologies, these tools, these technologies, you know, whether you're bringing them in directly or as a consultant or whatever the case is, or upskilling your existing workforce along during that process. And also, you know, like I said, just not updating you know, organizational processes and policies. I can tell you in the public sector, this is a major issue. You know, they are all pushing for cloud and DevSecOps, but they're still using their policies and processes, you know, from five or 10 years ago. And it's like trying to fit a, you know, a square peg in a round hole kind of thing. It just doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. And so there's, so there's updates going on and things like that, but it's been a major pain point to be honest. Yep. Yeah. I've seen, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of some standards we all know and love out there that, that reference antivirus instead of EDR, you know, it's, the, it's that kind of thing, right? The modern world is hit and we're still insisting on these antique paradigms that assume, you know, iron and cages and racks and data centers and it's, everything's on prem. And yeah, I think that's that's a huge one for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you touched on this earlier, I think a little bit, or, or I may have with regulation, there's, you said reactionary, there's always that kind of that reactionary nature of regulation and policies and processes catching up to technology. And it yeah. causes a lot of friction, that's for sure. Yeah, it does. All right. So let's slip it over to a positive side. What are the best tips for success? What are some good, solid foundational? Like if you've got somebody that says, I want to build a DevSecOps program, what are you going to tell them to do? I would honestly say, you know, start looking for other organizations who have had success with it. There's so many organizations that, uh, you know, we kind of live in this age where you can go out and get information from from Demi or anywhere, you know, that you may have not had access to in the past. You know, you can go out and hear from industry leaders, whether you're talking fan companies or public sector organizations who have had success, learn from their painful uh, lessons learned before you kind of come in them, <laughs> you know, stumble on them yourself. And honestly, just giving your workforce time to catch up to where things are, you know, where things are headed and how people are doing things versus just kind of dumping it on them expecting results in a short, unrealistic time frame uh, is definitely, you know, the way I would approach it. So just, you know, learn from others who have already been down that path, you know, some of the painful lessons they've learned and try to avoid them. That's solid advice. And you can listen to my show if you want to hear stories of how it's been done wrong and done right. <laughs> I think we offer equal quantities on this show. All right. What is something you have learned outside of cybersecurity that has helped you in cybersecurity? 
Honestly, I would say, uh, you know, communication kind of emphasizes a lot, you know, just being able to communicate, you know, maybe it was in the military, you know, or just you know, honestly, a lot of different avenues in life. But uh, when we look at cybersecurity, I'm sure you can agree that outside of technical skills, your ability to like influence, persuade, you know, build relationships, you know, build rapport is going to go farther than any technical, you know, skill or tool to drive down organizational risk. So just being a decent communicator, understanding, you know, people's needs and, and wants and what's driving them to do what they're doing and being able to empathize with that, uh, you know, has really led me in a good direction personally. I like that communication skills. I think it's, it's super important. I don't think it's mentioned enough. So I think that's a great, that's a great lesson to walk away with and be able to use in cyber. Anything else you'd like to add? Any last comments, thoughts, plugs, pitches, what else uh, you might want to share with us before we wrap this one up and call it a show? No, I will say, you know, just be touching on a few things, definitely worth checking out. Like I said, the uh, OpenSSF and Linux Foundation Open Source Software Security Mobilization Plan, really great document that dives into a lot of things we talked about, whether you're talking software, SBOMs, you know, build environments, you know, identity sign attestations. Honestly, if you look at their plan, the number one thing is developer education at the top of the list. You know, we talked about a lot of educating and empowering folks to do their job. Yep. I was really happy to see that at the top of the list. So definitely check that out. And, uh, you know, I'm just really excited to have this conversation and anyone that wants to keep going can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active in there and I enjoy, you know, engaging with the community. Yep. And I can attest to that. Chris is very active on LinkedIn and very smart on LinkedIn too. It's really, it's worth following him, you know, linking up and uh, keeping an eye on his threads for sure. He creates a lot of good conversations. So Chris Hughes, uh, CISO and co-founder at Acquia. Sure. Appreciate you coming on down to the ranch. Thank you listeners. Y'all be good now.